By faith, the people passed the red, through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. What more should I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. But others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This is the word of the Lord. Last April, Gail and I flew to Berlin. It was our third visit to that historic city. We were there first in 1988 when the city was still divided, when that horrible wall ran right through the Brandenburg Gate, when it ran through one of the most famous plazas in the city, the Potsdamer Platz. We were there again ten years afterward and saw the city being healed and rebuilt. We were there again in April and early May. It is a magnificent city. The Potsdamer Platz is beautiful again. We Americans have been there. There's a Dunkin' Donut right there in the square. There's a Subway sandwich shop as well. It made the games, the world games from Berlin, particularly interesting to me a couple of weeks ago, particularly the marathons run outside the stadium where Jesse Owens performed so brilliantly more than 70 years before. As the runners were shown running through the streets of Berlin, I could see places that Gail and I had walked just three months before. The beautiful, tragic new Holocaust Museum that stands just to the side of the Brandenburg Gate. One of the most beautiful cities in the world, the Unter den Linden, that leads right up to the Brandenburg Gate. Right through the Potsdamer Platz, past the magnificent Opera Hall, and so on. Only two disappointing things about the marathons. Americans did not win. Second of all, the races did not end in the stadium. I really wanted them to end in the stadium. That's the way Olympic marathons are ended. The runners get to run into the stadium, make one big lap around the field as thousands of people cheer for them. Berlin is so proud of their Brandenburg Gate that the marathons ended at the Brandenburg Gate. This text from Hebrews really pictures us finishing our marathon, coming into the arena, and having all the great women and men of faith who have preceded us in death cheering us on. Four things I've underlined in my text. First of all, this author begins by saying, sometimes things go really well for people of faith, wonderfully well. 
Once upon a time, he said, you remember God confronted Moses at the burning bush, sent him back to Egypt, visited plague upon plague upon the Pharaoh, till Pharaoh let God's people go free. But they had hardly left when Pharaoh decided he had made a terrible mistake. He and his predecessors had benefited from 400 years of enslaved labor by these folk, and he started pursuing them. The people came to the sea. Your Bible says the Red Sea. That's what the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scripture says. If you go all the way back to Hebrew, it says the Sea of Reeds, a significant body of water, but not as big as the Red Sea. Nonetheless, a body of water impassable to these Israelites, the Egyptians bearing down on them from behind. When Moses took the staff in his hand, held it out over the waters, and cried out to God who had sent him to Egypt, and a strong wind came and the waters were parted. The Israelites passed through the waters, water on the left, water on the right, all the way to safety. The pursuing Egyptians were swept up by the waters. Sometimes things go wonderfully well for people of faith. Our first spies we sent into the land of Canaan came back with mixed report. Two of the twelve said we could take this land. Ten said we could not, that the inhabitants were huge. We were grasshoppers beside them. Moses took the majority report, and God said, Then you'll have to wander out here in the desert until this generation dies away and the younger ones can lead you across the river. The two who had said, We can do it, Moses, were younger, Joshua and Caleb. They both outlived that generation. Moses led the people from watering hole to watering hole for 40 years. And finally they arrived. There was a great city there on the bank of the Jordan River called Jericho. Archaeologists, anthropologists say that Jericho may well be the longest continuous city on the planet. It may have been an inhabited city longer than any other on the planet. Now, of course, it's a part of the West Bank and all the controversy that goes on between Arab, Palestinians, and Israelites, the Jews of today. They came to Jericho. God told them, march around the walls. March around the walls day and night for seven days and nights. And then at the signal, give one tremendous shout and the walls will tumble down. We did what God told us to do, seven days and nights. We gave the loudest shout we could muster, and the walls came tumbling down. Sometimes things go really well for people of faith. When our second group of spies went into the land, after 40 years of being in the wilderness, they found someone who was sympathetic, a woman named Rahab. Here this author would be writing 1,200 years later about a prostitute who decided that Israel's God was going to win, that Israel's God was the one for the future. She sided with the spies. Things went really well with people of faith. However, if you were reading along with me, you discovered that this author is honest enough to say sometimes things don't go so well with people of faith. I learned that early on in my ministry. I was two months out of high school working for a company that sold drilling mud, loading, unloading, 100-pound sacks of cement. 
drilling mud bags. One day the district superintendent drove up first week of August, then three weeks from beginning college, and he said, pastor of two little country Methodist churches had split with his wife. He was going to drop out of the ministry. They had no one to send but me. I said, I, I haven't preached yet. I haven't been to school yet. I have four years of college, three years of graduate work. Maybe by then I'll know how to preach. He said, we have nobody else. You can do this. You go to college five days a week. You visit parishioners all day Saturday. You write a sermon Saturday night. You drive 17 miles to the smaller church the next morning and preach. When that service is over, you have 30 minutes to drive 17 miles back. You preach at the bigger church. You have all afternoon to write another sermon. You preach at 7.30 and go back to college on Monday. I drove up to the smaller church that Sunday morning. I saw a man getting out of a car who had no right arm. He introduced himself to me, said, My name is Cleburne Legrone. I'm so glad you're my new preacher. This is my first Sunday back after surgery at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston. They have removed my right arm to try to save my life. I came to know this man. What a wonderful man, Cleburne Legrone, son of a Methodist preacher big family. His ticket to college was playing basketball. He got a basketball scholarship. But he wanted to live in rural areas as his father had pastored small rural churches all of his ministry. And so he built a country grocery store 20 miles out of my hometown. The little country store did well. He sold everything from horse and mule feed to light bread. He built a second store. He bought land around both of them. They discovered a little oil, a little gas under them. Cleveland Legrone had done well. He was a member of the board of directors of the First National Bank in my hometown. He had hundreds of people praying for him. And he got sicker and sicker. And then he died. So two years ago, when I got a call that our Bob Purinton, one of our tenors, had been diagnosed with malignancy in one of his kidneys, I shuddered. We love Bob Purinton, you and I. I immediately thought of one of our Methodist preachers in Oklahoma City, Dr. David Severe, who had a similar diagnosis eight years before. I called Dr. Severe. I remembered that he had searched and searched, his physicians had searched and decided there was one surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio that did this particular surgery wonderfully well. Dr. Severe went there. He said, no sign of recurrence now for almost 10 years. I thought maybe this is it for Bob. Dr. Severe called Janet and Bob. They got in touch with that surgeon. They went to Cleveland. Bob had surgery. But in his case, his malignancy had already metastasized. He fought valiantly for two long years, and a few weeks ago, he died. Sometimes things go wonderfully well for people of faith, and sometimes things don't go so well. Some are tortured, imprisoned, beaten, stoned to death. Number three, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by wonderful people who've gone before us. You know, the longer I'm here, the greater sense of history I feel for this place. 
Sometimes early morning or late afternoon, I walk out behind the great hall here and look at the photographs of the senior pastors who've served here. I look in their eyes. I know they had great Easter Sundays, and I know they lost dear friends whom they had to bury. I look into Pastor Chenoweth's eyes, how young he was. Young wife, new baby. He was told to go start a church at a little trading post in Indian Territory, Bank of the Arkansas River. Is there a town there? No, no, there's no town. There wouldn't be a town for five more years. It's not a part of any state. No, it wouldn't be a state for 14 more years. Bridge across the river? No bridge across the river for 10 more years. Just a raft pulled across by rope. In a covered wagon with this young baby, this young wife, they drove for days and days, this team of horses pulling them all the way to this little trading post. They cut down poles and stuck them in the soft bank of the Arkansas River. They cut branches to shield themselves from the sun and they started having church. Within a few years they had a brick building, a, a wooden building, and then a few years later a brick building before finally they decided in 1927 to build this magnificent building here. Pastor Chenoweth, who cheers us on, cheers us on, I think about Mr. and Ms. C.C. Cole. They owned the land that is now Veterans Park. What a beautiful site. It's where their home was. They were investing so much in the life of this church. In 1927, this congregation had only 1,600 members. They had about 400 on Sunday morning. They could have put them all in the balcony, and they envisioned building this building. They sent out word to some of the biggest architectural firms in America that they were going to build a building unlike any other. Please submit a drawing if they would like. And when the drawings arrived, they all looked very much alike. They rejected them all. An art professor, University of Tulsa, a Quaker, Dr. Ada Robinson, called the Coles and said she had a drawing she would like for them to see. To humor her, they let her come to the next meeting. And when Dr. Robinson showed them her drawing, they said, that's the church we want to build. And on Easter Sunday, 1929, the congregation walked triumphantly down Boston Avenue from 5th to 13th, came in and had church on Easter Sunday. And six months later, the stock market crashed. The Coles and many others lost virtually everything they had. The Coles lost their home. They lost the land. It became Veterans Park in time. One day, Mr. Cole was standing just north where the park is now, looking at this building. And a passerby said, he said to him, Boy, I bet you had, wish you had all that money back you put in that church. And Mr. Cole said to him, No, you're wrong about that. The money I put in that church is all I have left. The church could not make its payments. They had borrowed money from an insurance company in Omaha, Nebraska. The insurance company was threatening to foreclose on the property. They already had a bid from a movie theater that would like to show movies in this building. 
Three of our men got on a train and rode all the way to Omaha, Nebraska to meet with the board of directors of the insurance company. They poured out their hearts to them and said, you know we're honest people. We wouldn't cheat you out of a dime for the world. We're just having a really tough time. Give us a little extension, a little more time. The board said to them, well, we're going to have lunch now. You come back at 2 o'clock and we'll give you our answer. And nobody knows to this day who the board called during lunch, but when our three representatives got there at 2 o'clock that afternoon, the board said to them, there are three Methodist preachers that if you can get your bishop to appoint any one of the three to be your pastor, we'll extend your loan. They said, we can't speak for the bishop, we'll deliver your message. They got on the train, came back to Tulsa, contacted the bishop. He said, well, one of them is in a big building project where he is. There's no way his bishop's going to let him move. Second one's in a big building project. His church is growing like crazy. There's no way his bishop is going to let him move. The third one, he's past 60 years old. He lives over here in Arkansas. I'm not sure he'll come at his age, but if he'll come, I'll appoint him. And Dr. Forney Hutchinson said he would come. The very first meeting with the administrative board of this church, he said, I called our board of global ministries in New York City, and I've arranged for us to be full support for one of our missionaries in Africa. Chairman of the board said, uh, Sir, you don't understand. You are here because we have no money. We have no money. And Dr. Hutchinson said, Then I've made a terrible mistake. We are not completely unpacked yet. We can repack and go home to Arkansas. I am not going to pastor a church that does not have the mission of Christ at its heart. And the chairman of the board said, if you leave, they'll take our building. Dr. Hutchinson said, your call. And the board voted unanimously to take on the support of a missionary, and the church began to make its payments. What a cloud of witnesses we have. Can you see them? Can you hear them rooting for you, cheering for you? Number four. Number four. Run the race that is set before you with perseverance. Run the race set before you. Well, here I was, 18 years old. I had to get all this college work behind me, so I thought, well, I'm going to do it as fast as I can. And so that fall, I signed up for 19 semester hours. I went to the next preacher's meeting. I saw the pastor of the First Methodist Church in Longview, Texas, the biggest in our district. I was telling him, I said, I'm ready. I've signed up for 19 semester hours. I'm... He said, wait, 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 wait a second. This is not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon. Slow down. This is a marathon. I took 19 hours. That next spring, I took 20. I went through the summers. I completed my bachelor's degree in three. Three more years of graduate school. And I was on the way. I've been doing this 50 years. Every Sunday for 50 years. I understand this is not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon. But the people, the people, Gail and I love Ms. Mabel and Mr. Bob at our first church. My first Sunday there, these folks had never seen me. 
I'd never seen them. The district superintendent had to, had to tell me how to get to both of the little churches. When I got to the bigger one, there were 56 people there. And I stood at the door after the service was over, shaking hands with all these folks. And then right at the end came Ms. Mabel, Mr. Bob. The ushers had brought the money back and put it on the altar. And it had stayed there all during the service. And then Ms. Mabel, church treasurer, Mr. Bob, stuffed it in a sack. Monday morning, took it to the bank. Ms. Mabel introduced herself to me, said, This is my husband, Bob. I shook their hands. She said, Anybody invite you for lunch? I said, No, ma'am. She said, Well, then you go eat with us. And every Sunday for the next six years, when they would come last out of the church, they would say, Anybody invite you for lunch? And if I said, No, ma'am, she said, Then you come with us. She and Mr. Bob fed me. When Gail and I got married, they fed both of us. Sometimes we'd go to the, their house and Ms. Mabel would say, you're going to have to get something out of the garden. Gail, you get three tomatoes. Muzan, you get a couple of bell peppers. Bob, you pull some radishes. We had lunch. I'm glad to have Miss Mabel, Mr. Bob, rooting for me. They were wonderful. A few weeks ago, we lost Roger Scott from this church. I miss him. He ushered right over there every Sunday for the last 29 years. Roger was here every time we needed him. Christmas Eve, he worked 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, was back at 11 to work through midnight, helping people find a seat. He was a very successful attorney here in town. Look at what interested him most beyond his practice in, in law. He chaired the Ethics Committee for the City of Tulsa. He chaired the Ethics Committee for Northeastern Oklahoma. He chaired the State Ethics Committee for our state of Oklahoma. He was a Mason involved in the shrine, the jesters they were called. Many of you see all the, the didos they do in their fancy little cars and motorcycles at the Christmas parade, but they raised thousands and thousands of dollars for one of the finest burn hospitals in America, for one of the finest crippled children's hospital in America. Roger was so faithful to, to, to Sigma Chi, his fraternity, all those years that he was a given Lifetime Achievement Award by his fraternity. He was active in Boy Scouts all those years, gave so much time and energy with Boy Scouts that he was awarded the prestigious Silver Beaver Award. Everything he did, he did well, married more than 50 years, wonderful father. For me, he was an encourager. When I first arrived, he asked me the morning, how are you feeling? I said, I don't feel so good. Oh, he said, you're sick. I said, no more than usual. I'm just always sick on Sunday morning. My stomach's always like this. No breakfast for me on Sunday morning. He understood that. He understood that. Every Sunday when we came down the aisle and I turned behind the choir and when our Roger was standing right over there, and whether it was a hot day or whether there was ice and snow everywhere, as I rounded that corner right down there, he did this to me. Thumbs up. It's a great day. You and I are in the house of the Lord, and it's a great day. I'm sorry he's gone, but I'm thankful to have him rooting for you and me every day. Every day. We are surrounded. We are surrounded.